Do you know how you got your name? Why did your parents decide to name you whatever it was that they decided to name you? My name is Joe. And so, as you can probably guess, there is a scintillating story between, behind that highly creative name of mine. Um, actually, I didn't really know. I had heard some rumors. So a couple weeks ago, I called my mom, and I asked her, hey, how did you and dad decide to name me what you did? And this is what I found out. My parents had a deal. If I was a girl, my mom got to pick the name, because she was a girl. And if I was a boy... My dad would get to pick the name because he's a boy. And so if I had been a girl, my mom was going to name me Kelly. I think that's a pretty good name. And actually, when my younger sister was born, that was the name that they gave to her. I bet you can't guess what my dad wanted to name me. It wasn't Joe. Sebastian Salvatore Flores. I know, right? I apologize to the Sebastians in here. If there are any, we just laugh. But that's what they wanted to name me, Sebastian Salvatore Flores. In fact, you know, I was born two weeks late, and the delivery was really, really, really long. And think I now know why. Like, I was in my mother's womb, and I'm pretty sure I overheard the conversation about what my dad wanted to name me. And I thought to myself, there is no way I'm coming out into that world where I'm going to be called Seabass. It would have been even worse after Dumb and Dumber came out in the 90s. And so, so anyhow, my name is Joe. Obviously, uh, my dad didn't win that argument. And I'm a, I'm a junior. Um, I am named after my dad. And I know what you're probably thinking. Um, I thought this for a while. That's really meaningful. He's named after his father. But that's not even really how it went down. Um, my mom was so tired after I finally came into the world that sort of in exhaustion, she looked over at my dad and said, can't we just name him after you? I realized that my name was not the most meaningful name. It was just the least disagreeable name on that day. I feel like I have like the ice water of names. Like nobody loves it, but nobody hates it. Restaurants just give it to you for free because, you know, they know you won't actually pay for it, but they give it to everyone just to hold you by because they know that nobody hates it. It's like, here, drink this until you can think of something better. And, and I feel like my name is Joe. My parents couldn't think of anything better. Um, and I tell you that story, actually. Uh, I like my name. It's very easy to spell. That has helped me a lot in my life. And, and it's really an honor to be named after my dad. And I tell you this story about my name, and I ask you, how did you get your name? Because this morning we were going to look at a Bible verse that talks about a very specific name. So we've been in this series on the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. And if this is one of your first Sundays here uh, to hear one of these messages, you might be wondering, what is this metal barrier doing up here on the stage? But if you've been here for one of our messages in this series, you probably know that we put this up here on the stage because it's a great visual example of what the Ten Commandments can mean for our lives. And we've talked about how some people call this a guardrail. And other people call this a guide rail. But either way, it really illustrates what happens when we take the teaching from Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments and apply it to how we live. Because as you know, a guardrail, it protects us from dangerous things like boulders or trees or cliffs. And in the same way, when we take the Ten Commandments and we apply them to how we live, it protects us from really harmful decisions that might wreck our lives. 
and a guide rail. It guides us along the safe road to our desired destination. And in the same way, the Ten Commandments, they will guide us into living the life that represents our love for God and our love for other people. So this morning, I want to invite you back into Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to be in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. If you have your Bible, you can pull it out. You can grab one nearby you uh, in one of the pews. Use the Bible app. It's a great tool for, for reading your Bible, or you can just follow along here on the screen. This is what we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. This is the third commandment. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What Moses is saying here, what God's saying through Moses is that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to use God's name. In fact, in the original language, this word for misuse means empty or nothing or worthless. So misusing God's name is to use his name in an empty or or a worthless way. For our discussion this morning, we're going to kind of say this. We're going to say that it is a big deal to make no big deal of God's name. It's a big deal to make no big deal of God's name. Now, there's an honest question that comes along with this third commandment. It just kind of is contained in the packaging. And and I've asked it myself, and and I I would bet that there are some here this morning that are asking it themselves. And so we're just going to talk about it. So here's the question. What is the big deal about making no big deal of God's name? Why is this such a big deal? If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, you probably know that there are some real doozies on the list of the Ten Commandments. Almost no one, whether they believe in a God or not, let alone care what he thinks about their lives, would agree that murder is a ginormous deal. There was a poll that Gallup released earlier this year that said that 89% of Americans still believe that adultery is morally wrong. A higher percentage than human cloning or suicide. If you drive around Butler in the summertime, you probably see, I don't know what they're actually called. I call them the honor system corn on the cob stands. You know what I'm talking about. They've got the red and white awnings on top. They have a big old pile of corn, but no one there selling it. So if you want corn, you've got to go up and you're trusted to pay for what you take. And it works because they know that most people still believe stealing or taking something that isn't yours is wrong. And so we see this list of things that God doesn't want us to do in our lives, and it's really easy to understand why murder or adultery or stealing or some of these other things are on the list, but we sometimes have to wonder, okay, so why mess with messing with God's name? What's the big deal? And we might even be honest enough to say, you know, look at God, like I watch the news, maybe you should get a TV. Do you not see what's going on in the world around us and all this evil that is taking place? I mean, if there's all these problems, God, why is this the problem that you're trying to solve? And we're going to talk about this this morning. Why is it a big deal? And in order to understand why misusing God's name is a big deal, we have to first understand what his name is, and what it means. So I'm going to ask you to track with me for a moment. We're going to walk through this. Okay. Did you know that God has a variety of different names in the Bible? 
There's a number of different words that are used to refer to God. And he has first what are called categorical or title names. So for instance, when you read your Bible, sometimes you see the word Lord. And in the original language, it can be spelled Adonai or A-D-O-N-A-Y or I, depending on how you read it. And this is a word that refers to anyone who is a master or a ruler. It's a categorical name. We see this in Psalm 147.5 where the Bible says, Great is our Lord Adonai and mighty in his power. His understanding has no limit. Another name for God is Elohim. Elohim. And it refers to anyone or anything who is a divine or spiritual being. This is the word in the very first verse in the Bible. Exodus, or, sorry, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. This isn't a concept that's really foreign to us, though. So I'm looking around the room, and I'm seeing a number of guys that could probably be referred to by someone as dad. There are a number of dads in the room, but when I go home at the end of the day to my house, and my kids come and call me dad, I know they're not talking to anyone but me. Or pastor. We have a number of pastors at our church. But whenever one of you comes up to me on Sunday morning and looks at me and says, Good morning, pastor. I know you're not talking to Pastor Danny or Pastor Keith. You mean me. Now, God doesn't just have categorical or sort of big picture names. He's like us. And then he also has a personal name. A personal name. The first time God's personal name is revealed to a human being in the Bible is in, is in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God's personal name in the Bible is shown as Lord. Lord. So have you ever been reading your Bible and maybe you noticed that, that sometimes the word Lord shows up as L-O-R-D with just a capital L, and sometimes it shows up as all caps, Lord. The Bible translators weren't just mixing it up. You see this sometimes in, in like a verse like Psalms 8-9, where it says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. When we see all caps Lord in the Bible, the Bible is referring to God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh. Are you tracking with me? So, so, so okay. The first time the Bible actually uses this name is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And here's what was going on. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And he basically says to Moses, we needed someone who could go back to Egypt and lead the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. So we had a draft, and congratulations, you were my first round pick. And Moses was like, I didn't even sign up for this draft. How did I get picked? And he's, so he's making these excuses and he says, God, like, how will they even know who I am? If I go and I say that God's leading you, leading you people out of Egypt, and they're going to say, who sent you? And God answers Moses' question in the first person. He says this, tell them, Aya has sent you. Aya. Or as our Bibles say it, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am. Aya has sent me to you. He answers the first person. He says, I am has sent you. But if you think about it, Moses goes to the people and he says, hey, I am sent me to you. That doesn't make any sense. They're going to wonder, is I like you, Moses, or is I somebody else, like a different person? So in the very next verse, God gives Moses the way he is supposed to say. And God says, 
God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Yahweh. He who is. It's the third person form of I am. God is the one who is. He just is. This means, this means that God's existence does not depend on anyone or anything beside himself. And some Bible translators would even argue that what Moses actually heard wasn't so much he who is, but that God said his name was he causes to be. So what God is saying is that my name is the one on whom the existence of everyone and everything in the universe depends. He said, I am the one who causes everything else to be. And I am the one who was not caused by anything because I am the self-existent one. He finishes his thought in Exodus 3.15 and says, This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. I want to talk about what this means for our lives, though. What does his name, Yahweh, mean for our lives? We have to understand that God's name is so intertwined with who he is that it not only identifies him, it is his identity because he is the self-existent one. It is not a label. It is his nature. It's not a word that we just use to refer to him. It is the essence of who he is because he is the self-existent one. God's name and who he is are inseparable from one another. My, my name is Joe, but my parents could have called me Salvatore or Mike. It doesn't matter. I'd still be a six-foot white guy with an okay beard and a bigger-than-average nose. That's just my label. But God's name is inseparable from who he is. He could not have any other name and still be who he is because no other name would fit. If he had any other name, he would have to change who he is. And he cannot do that because he is the self-existent one. Pastor and theologian John Piper said this. He said, when it comes to using God's name in an empty way, it's dealing with God and speaking of God in a way that empties him of his significance. When we use, misuse God's name, we empty him of his significance. When we violate God's name, we violate God himself because he and his name are inseparable. So back to our original question. What's the big deal about making no big deal of God's name? It is such a big deal because when we misuse God's name, we treat God himself as no big deal. Think, think about the significance of who God is for our lives. If he is the one who causes to be, that means that he holds our universe and our lives in his hand, in his will, 
is the choice of whether you and I take another breath, whether you and I continue to exist for another day. God's servant Job, in Job 12.10, says this, In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. When we understand this about God, when we understand who we are in, in relationship to who he is, how can we possibly ever use his name in a way that diminishes the significance of who he is and what he is? How insulting must it be to the God on whom our very lives and continued existence depends whenever we use his name in a way that makes it out to be as though we don't need him at all? And I wonder if God's ever tempted to prove his significance to us when we misuse his name by closing his hand on our existence. We should, I think, be scared to death to use God's name in a way that empties him of his significance. But I also want you to know that fear is not the number one reason that we should follow this third command to use God's name in the proper way. God wants us to use his name in a way that exemplifies his significance for a bigger reason than fear. God wants us to use his name properly because we love him, not because we fear him, but because we love him. Let me explain what I mean with a quick story. Um, whenever... Whenever I first got married to my wife, Trisha, uh, this is like 12, um, we're not going to put a number on it, a number of years ago. Um, why would I do that to myself? It's been 11 years. So, so we get married, anyhow, it's a number of years ago, and we're, we're going through this adjustment of living together for the first time. And if you've ever done that, it's a little bit bumpy. So I remember a few weeks after we get back from the honeymoon, we're, we're at home, and like we go upstairs to our bedroom, and we get into bed, and th- uh, this, this story, let's not go in that direction. We get into bed, and we are going to, uh, we're going to watch TV in bed. And I like watching TV in bed uh, before I go to bed. It relaxes me. I enjoy it. I have been doing it for a number of years before I got married. And I'm pumped. Like, this is what married life about. Spending time with your wife, doing what you like to do. And so I do something that I have been doing for years when I would watch TV in bed. I reached over beside the bed and I pulled out a container of pretzel rods. <clears throat> this is a 100% true story. I pull out pretzel rods and I pop off the lid and I start eating a pretzel rod. And my wife goes... What do you think you're doing? And I was like, uh, you know, I'm thinking, I'm a new husband. Uh, I'm eating pretzel rods in bed. You can see that. But there's something telling me that you're not happy. And <clears throat> I'm not really experienced at this being a husband thing. So I'm going through the things in my head that could be possible reasons she's not happy with me. And then I realized, I never offered her a pretzel rod. <laughs> That's obvious. <laughs> So I pull out a pretzel rod, and I'm like, would you like a pretzel rod? And that was not, that was not what was bothering her. And so, so she said, no, I don't want a pretzel rod, and you're not eating them in bed either. And so I was like, why not? And she, she said, I am not sleeping in a bed full of pretzel crumbs. And I thought, all right, I get what the premarital counselor was talking about. Like, this is going to pay off. We are in a conflict. We need to find common ground, and I have found common ground. She doesn't like pretzel crumbs in bed. I don't like pretzel crumbs in bed, which is why I went on to explain to her that over my years of experience in eating pretzel rods in bed, I have developed a technique 
that prevents crumbs. And you can try this. It will work for you. If when you eat a pretzel rod, if you bite it and you at the same time inhale, like your mouth acts as a shot back and sucks the pretzel crumbs right in and you never get any in the bed. I really hope it helps you. It did not help me at all. That was the last time I ever ate pretzel rods in bed, with her at home at least. And, and here's what I realized. So, so this is what I realized. Like two weeks before that, I had made the most solemn vows of my life. I stood up in front of my wife and, our, and God and all the people in our lives that we cared about, and I made a vow that I was going to love her and commit to her and, and do everything in my life that I could possibly do to serve her and show her that love. Through better or worse, rich or poor, sickness and health. If I was willing to give my entire life to live for this woman, what was the big deal about just not eating pretzels in bed? And this is the point. There are people here today, many of us, who have made that same kind of a commitment to God. We have said, God, I realize you're a God of love and that you love me and that you love me so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for me. And we have chosen to give God our lives in response to his love for us. We've decided, I want to live a life of love and service to you. Doesn't it stand to reason that if we're willing to give God our lives out of response to love for him, wouldn't we just naturally want to use his name the way he would want us to use it? Wouldn't we want to use his name in a way that represents his significance, his love for us, and our love for him? You know, if I told you, I didn't care what my wife said, tough luck for her. I'm going to do what I want. She can just get over it. You would have every right to question my seriousness about my love for her. As we finish our time together this morning, we're going to look at some different ways that God's name is commonly misused. And as we do this, I ask you to examine your own life. I know I've done this for myself as I've worked through this. Examine the way that you use God's name. Examine what you do in your life and ask yourself, is how I use God's name truly representative of my love for him? So here's a few ways that we use God's name or misuse it. The first way is this. Using God's name as a curse word, expression, or figure of speech. There's an author, his name's Rob Sheck, and he wrote this book a number of years ago. And, and he was talking about, and he tells this story in his book, about he was coming back from a long speaking engagement and he had to catch a late flight. And he gets on this plane, and he sits down, and he's hoping that he can just get some sleep. Like he's just tired and wants to rest. And, and he starts to hear these two salesmen talking behind him. And they're talking really loud, and their, their conversation is just very, very profane. And, and for a while, he tried to ignore it, but then they started to use God's name as part of their foul language. So he decided he was just going to say something. So he stood up in his seat, and he turned around, and he asked the, the guys, Excuse me, are, are either of you gentlemen in the ministry? And they shot him this look back like, what the bleep would give you that idea? And he said, you know what, I, I am, I'm actually in the ministry, and I've got to say, you have really, really impressed me with your communication skills. Just listening to you, you've used Jesus, damn, God, and hell all in one sentence. I preach for a living, and I can't fit all of that into an entire sermon. And they didn't say anything the rest of the flight. 
You know, this is the most common thing when we, th- we think of when we get to this third commandment. Using God's name as a swear word or a figure of speech or an expression. You don't have to really look too far to find God's name used this way. Just get on Facebook for a little while or watch a little bit of network television and you'll realize that in our society, God's name is no longer considered to be profane when it is used in this way. But I'm really not here to tell you how bad our world is getting. In fact, I think, you know, when we live in a world where people live most of their lives as if God is no big deal, we should almost expect them to use God's name as no big deal. You know, the biggest problem isn't whenever people whose lives are empty of God use his name in an empty way. What what I want to challenge us with as God's people is this. When we are a people that claim that God is our everything, Shame on us when we use his name as though he is nothing. And so if you're here today and you would say, you know, I I made a commitment to Christ in my life and I'm following him as my Lord and my Savior, then his name as a swear word or a flippant figure of speech should never come from your tongue. It hurts your relationship with God and it really harms his reputation with those who need a relationship with him. And so if you catch yourself or if I catch myself using his name in that way, We need to repent, and we need to stop, and we need to apologize to anyone who heard us use his name in that way. The second way uh, that God's name can be misused is this. It's by using God's name to endorse my own ideas, plans, and desires. Like it or not, we're heading into the election season here over the next year. How many times do you think you're going to hear this on the radio or on the television? My name is blank, and I approve this message. Did you know that that's actually required by law? There was, in 2002, a law that was passed called the Stand By Your Ad Law. And it was passed as an effort to reduce negative ad campaigns, and candidates are actually required to put their name and their image on any uh, advertisement that supports them. I, I'm not a, I don't think it's worked. Like it, I don't see a lot of effort, evidence that that's made anything better, but I don't bring it up because of that. Here's my thought. How many times in your life and in my life do you or I come up with my own idea or my own desire, my own campaign, and then I kind of just slap, I'm God and I approve this message on the back of it? People do this in our lives. We do this in a number of ways. You know, some people will take God and try to justify their sin with his name. Um, I see this sometimes when people are they're, they're living in a relationship with someone that is outside of, of what God has said in his word is a type of relationship he'd want you to have, or you're going about it in a way that's different than his word says you should go about it, or maybe you're trying to break off a relationship for reasons that God hasn't said is okay to break off a relationship. And, and so people want what they want, but they want to feel good about it as well. So you'll hear people say things like this. Well, this is just what feels right to me. Or this is what would make me happy. I just, you know, I just believe God would want me to be happy. Or if, if God didn't want me to do this, why would it feel so right? And you basically take his name and attach it to the wrong thing that you're doing. In your life, are you justifying anything with God's endorsement? Or, or I've seen people misuse scripture twist God's words to make him say things he never meant to say. 
Um, a common way that this is done is with James chapter 4, verse 2. That, that verse says, you have not because you do not ask God. And I've heard preachers even say, you know, this verse teaches that God wants you to have excellent health and financial abundance. Because, you know, you just don't have it because you're not asking God. And if you are asking, you're just not asking with enough faith. And it really messes up people's faith because they are asking for something. And they're thinking that God said something that he never really said. Or I've sat across the table with wives who are in abusive relationships with their husbands. And their husbands have kind of attached themselves to verses like Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, where the Bible says, wives submit to your husbands. And their husbands are using God's words in a twisted way to justify their abuse of miserable leadership in their homes. We have to make sure we're taking scripture and allowing God to say what he meant to say, not what we want him to say. Another way that this happens, I think, is when people use this phrase, God told me. It sometimes sounds like God told me he wants me to do this. Or even worse, God told me he wants you to, to do this. And I want to be really sensitive because I, I know that that's a way that a lot of people with very pure and very sincere motives ha, ha, have tried to describe sort of the relationship and the leading that they've heard from God. But we have to be extremely cautious. Anytime that we say or we claim to have authoritative, indisputable information that God has given only to me. Does God lead us through his Holy Spirit? Absolutely. As we seek him, will he guide us in the direction he wants us to go? I, I 100% believe that. But maybe it's better than, than sort of pridefully saying, God told me. Maybe it'd be better to say something along the lines of, you know, I've been seeking God about this, and this is where I feel like he's leading me. Or, or we've been praying about this, and we feel God is calling us to. And, and, and while we're on some sensitive topics, there's one last one I want to bring up. Um, we are heading into an election season. And, and as Christians, we've got to be very, very careful that we don't assume that just because we follow Jesus, that the candidate that I think should win is the candidate that God endorses as well. Uh, and I've said this before myself, and, and I want to just say this publicly, God is, God's kind of convicting me, but I, I, I kind of cringe sometimes when I've heard myself or other people say something like, you know, I just don't know how a Christian could vote for. Or, you know, if you're a Christian, you've got to vote for so-and-so. We, as followers of Jesus, cannot label any one candidate as God's guy or God's gal. And when we try to project that a certain person is God's chosen or anointed person for a position of leadership in our country or in our community, it kind of implies that if they don't win, then the voters have more power than God does himself. As Christians, we are called to pray for our leaders, that God will give them wisdom. We are called to seek God's guidance in who we vote for. But we have to be very careful not to label anyone with God's endorsement as his chosen or anointed. The final way that we can misuse God's name at times in our lives is by using God's name in empty prayer and worship. Using God's name in empty prayer and worship. As I've been working through this message, this is something that God's really been convicting me about as well. I mean, as a pastor, I pray like in front of people a lot. Like when you're the pastor in the family, anytime something needs prayed for, you get, you're it. 
And, and you have to be very careful that every time you pray, you realize who it is you're talking about. Like in our house, for instance, when it comes to dinner time, I have like two kids, eight and six, and it can be crazy sometimes. It feels like, you're, it feels like, a, like the end of a really good roller coaster. A group of people are flying down a path 100 miles an hour, and they go through a bunch of hoops and loops, and you come to a sudden stop together. And in our house, we try to say a prayer before we eat to recognize that it's God who's provided for us. But, you know, sometimes it's like we've got to eat before someone has to go to the bathroom or decides that they don't like chicken this week. And so we get to prayer time. It's like, okay, hurry up and do this. And, like, this was happening a couple weeks ago. I was home with my boys by myself, which always makes dinner that much more stressful. Um, And we get, amazingly, food on the table, like, hot. And we're about to rush through the prayer. And I just told my kids, like, we got to stop. Let's remember who we're talking to. This isn't just something we say. Do we really believe that God provided for us? Or, or what about when you come to worship? You know, we can put the words on the screen and you can kind of sing them, but your mind can be somewhere com- else completely. You could be just mouthing words, but you're really thinking about the Steeler game or your afternoon plans, or you're just counting how many more songs you, you, you might think we'd have to sing before you get to sit down. And, you know, here's the thing. God wants us to call on his name in prayer. And he wants us to praise his name in worship. But he wants us to be mentally and emotionally and spiritually present when we do it. And when we're not present, when we're praying or when we're in worship, our minds are somewhere else, or we're just sort of repeating empty prayers, according to Exodus 20, this third commandment, we're misusing God's name. And it would be better if we just didn't pray or sing at all until we were ready to do it how he wants us to do it. So, so here's the deal. I know we've thrown a lot of stuff at you this morning, a lot of don'ts, right? And you might be sitting there thinking today, all right, you've given me all this stuff God doesn't want me to do. But what am I supposed to do? Here, here's what I want you to realize as we're going through this series on the Ten Commandments. On the opposite side of every you shall not is an I really want you to. On the opposite side of every negative side of a commandment is a positive thing that God wants us to live in light of. And so on the opposite side of it's a big deal to make no big deal of God's name is God saying this, I really want you to make a big deal of my name. Because God is a big deal. He is who he is. He is the self-existent one. He is the one who causes to be. He wants us to call on his name in prayer. He wants us to lift up his name as we sing worship to him. He wants us to proclaim the wonder and the might and the majesty and the glory of his name. He wants the entire world to know that his name is the name above all names. Because he is the one who just is. So this morning our worship team, as you can see, they are coming. And we are going to do what he has asked us to do. We are going to exalt his name together. So I invite you in a moment to stand. And if you feel like God wants you to exalt his name through worship, give it everything you've got in worship. If you feel like he wants you to call on his name in prayer, sit where you're at in prayer and call on his name. If you want to raise your hands, you can raise your hands. If you want to dance a little bit, you can dance a little bit. Just don't hurt anybody. That's all we ask. But you can do that. Please stand with me now or sit and pray if that's what you feel like you want to do right now. But as God's people, let's make a big deal of his name.